This week in left field football content, it did not come home. Did this podcast cause this exact ending for England's Euros run? And meanwhile in Brazil, Messi finally wins a Copa America. In not football, will anyone willingly give Novak Djokovic his flowers? Conor McGregor snaps his leg and can Shohei Otani save baseball? Enjoy the show. Welcome to Left Field, your favourite sports, Jason Trashcast, with me, your boy Wogan, and my good friend Andrew Allen. Andrew, are you well? I am. I'm much better than yesterday. This is take two. It's take two. We tried to do this after less than 24 hours after the final, but we were a bit spent. Just think how much more there is to talk about 48 hours after the Euros final as opposed to 24 hours after. Yep, there's some slightly new takes. Um... I don't know if you've done anything better in your social life in the last 24 hours. I mean, I, it's fair to say yesterday we were both pretty um, miserable, not for the same reasons, I don't think, aside from the sort of effects of a hangover and tiredness and fatigue and weekend drinking and partying and whatnot. But um, I think we were just very chemically imbalanced. Like we said last week that Sunday at 8pm is probably the shittest time of all time for any football match, let alone such a big football match and that definitely carried over into Monday for me yeah absolutely for disastrous sure. um but I feel amazing now we're, we're as I said we have 48 hours since one of the most emotionally draining football matches I've ever seen the like dust and the beer cans and the broken glasses all settled let's do we have to do the match first and then I guess we can get to the fallout because we've had two days worth of fallout and it seems to be the country is falling apart England <laughs> did lose the Euros I hope that I'm not breaking that news to anyone I guess the other side of that coin is that Italy won the Euros I do have a theory is it possible that this podcast caused this exact ending to the Euros like I literally prayed for England to lose in whatever the most painful possible way was while you prayed for any ending other than a heartbreaking penalty shootout experience for Bakayo Saka. <laughs> and I think our prayers got picked up by the sort of maybe the cruel Old Testament God as opposed to the new participation trophy New Testament God. Uh, yeah, it's fair to say that your uh, prayers were heard and mine certainly were not. Um, <laughs> it was like a punishment. Have you done something bad? <sighs> Probably. I... Um, I was absolutely devastated for Bukayo Saka and his mere presence on the pitch from the moment he was on, it felt like my attitude to the game completely changed. It went from being, you know, something I was obviously very, you know, aware of and into to something which I immediately realised could turn sour for me on a personal level. And I I, I just... um, I mean, if if we go straight to the end and the penalty shootout, as soon as I saw that Saka had been given the responsibility of taking that penalty. I got up from the sofa. I was watching uh, our friend Josh's house. And I, I, I think I just planted myself on the floor. I don't even know if I watched Saka take the penalty. I just, I think I heard him miss it, you know, via oh. the commentary. And then I just stayed on the floor for about 10 minutes, like um, like a child. Um I was also on the floor, but I was sort of going through a kind of anguish with myself um, because I felt guilty that I wanted him to miss because my overall feeling on Sunday night was just this massive sense of relief. Like I cannot describe, and I won't dwell on it, but I cannot describe the dread that I was feeling about England potentially winning. Like I, I just did not want this to happen. England winning would have vindicated the whole it's coming home sentiment, this kind of ironic underdog maxim, um, which doesn't really work because England is never an underdog. But then when I saw Saka miss, I just thought, oh, no, any other way. Could this have please happened in any other way? I wish it wasn't him. Like, I wish it wasn't Rashford or Sancho, but especially Saka. I got over it very quickly. I'd say that feeling lasted about five seconds. But I felt like I had done that to Saka by wishing devastating ill upon England. I mean, it it really didn't have to be that way in the shootout. I mean, 
Jordan Pickford could have just let Jorginho, Jorginho the ball into the back of the net and then poor old Bukayo would have been spared all of this and um, yeah. you know, it would have all fallen on Jaden Sancho and Marcus Rashford instead. <laughs> um, you know, their their shoulders are, you know, bigger, stronger. Um, they've been through a few more experiences in life than, than, than young Bukayo. But it wasn't to be. Um, I think, I mean, we'll get to the, the, the post-game stuff in a bit, but... Um, I think the result was probably deserved in the end for Italy. Um, yeah, they've I think been you're right. the most consistent uh, side throughout the tournament. Um, their game management was excellent. I think Mancini um, probably had his players prepared for the way the game was going to go. Um, maybe not quite going one 0 down quite so early, but you know his players did not look flustered by the fact that they did go 1-0 down. Well, not for more than five minutes anyway. After that, they started to work their way back into the game and really turn the screw in the second half. The equaliser was deserved. And um, yeah, I mean, it was... I wouldn't say it was a disappointing performance by England. I think it was an England performance by, you know, this England team. Um, they, they showed flashes of what they can do. But in when push came to shove in this instance, they just didn't quite have enough experience and guile to get themselves over the line. Um, you know, I think there've been some question marks over Southgate's management of the game itself and some of his substitutions, obviously the substitutions that led to, um, you know, led to Rashford and Sancho taking penalties, but whether or not he could have made changes earlier in the game to try and swing the momentum back England's way. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it was uh, it was a fun game to watch. I mean, there was a lot going on. It was very tense, and um, I feel like it lived up to the spectacle that the rest of the tournament has has is, is you know the high standards the rest of the tournament has, has set. Yeah, it was wild. Like it really started wild. Like Luke Shaw, I I will never remember this because. You know, it doesn't matter now. It's academic because of getting a loss. But Luke Shaw's goal was really great. Like, he was the one... He got the ball in the left-back position a minute and a half into the game. He turned... I can't remember which Italian player, but he was. it was part of their high press. He beat the press by himself on the outside at left-back, passed the ball, keeps making his run, and by the time there's two minutes on the clock, he's scored this Zidane-like half-folly on the run you know, it was electric. If that was my team, I'd be delighted. And then it just, yeah, it took about 10 or 15 minutes for the game to sort of, it, it never chilled out, but to sort of calm down where Italy were definitely the pressing team. And I understood, you know, when Southgate made, he, he put Trippier on and took Grealish off in the semi final, And that was, you know, lauded as a very, a, a good thing to do because it worked out this time he was similarly conservative but it didn't work out so now he's getting panned for it and the truth of whether he's clever or you know naive is somewhere in the middle I still thought that it wasn't necessarily his conservatism that lost it but it was England's inability to turn their conservative into attack like they were absolutely shite in transition particularly in the second half like you know you accept a game state and you try to defend a 1-0 lead that is, seems to be the Southgate way but whether it's his coaching or whether it's the players or whatever it was they then completely failed at countering every time Declan Rice got the ball when the Italian attacks would break down it would just sort of be like and he'd either hoof it or he'd fall over or else Italy would immediately win the ball back off him um, Calvin Phillips even though I really like Calvin Phillips was not completely dissimilar you know it's I don't know it, it I mean, all jo- fed Jordan the fact Henderson that- had a big chunk of the game as well and I'm not sure that his presence necessarily brought about a change in the way that England were playing in the way that Southgate might have hoped um, yeah absolutely uh, I, I saw someone I can't remember who wrote uh, made a very good point that, that there was a um, Berardi who came on for Italy did more than anybody to really change the game. You know, just after he came on, Italy had a kind of 20-minute spell where they had the majority of their chances on goal. They scored their goal. Um, 
they kind of tugged England all over the pitch or his runs tugged England all over the pitch. And, um, you know, more than anyone for Italy, he probably played the decisive role in swinging the game in their favour. Um, you know, I think watching Southgate after the game talking about having his stomach ripped out by the result, um, he looked shattered um, emotionally. He looked, you know, just tired physically. Um, it's been a hell of a month for him and and for his players. And uh, yeah, it sounds like he needs to kind of take stock, look back on that game. And I'm sure there'll be elements of it where he'll be wondering whether he made the right decisions. But, you know, such is life. I mean, we won't dwell on it too long, but you do have to give credit to Italy. They pressed. It was really nice to see Mancini and Viali hugging it out at the end. You know, ex-Sampdoria teammates. That was quite sweet. I, I, I don't know if I'm just more endeared to the Italian management because they all dress nicely or if I think they're actually clever football men. But, you know... The players loved it as well. They all seem very happy. It, it, I still can't get over the weird artifice that is a penalty shootout because ostensibly these two teams drew and yet one team goes home really happy and one team goes home really sad. And obviously England definitely lost. I don't want to give anyone any kind of undue solace on that. But penalties is a weird construct that's basically just coin flips. Yeah, and I mean, it's just amazing how many games at the highest level in these competitions get decided like that. Um, you know, so much goes into the build-up to a tournament and ultimately for all of the practice, because let's not, you know, there's no, make no bones about it, England practice penalties, you know, they were psychologically prepared as well as they probably have ever been for a penalty shootout. And yet you walk away from the tournament and the manager's being asked, why did he pick the players that he picked to take the the, the penalties? Um, and I think there are some legit questions. I didn't really like the undertone or the, the suggestion that other players hadn't stepped up as if we knew that they hadn't themselves volunteered. I know that Gary Neville kind of was calling out players. and Was it Gary Neville or someone was calling I, out players? Roy I think Greeley Gre- said you yeah. can't let... You know, if you're one of the senior players, you can't let, you know, Saka walk up in front of you like that. And and, and I think Grealish has come out since then and said, I was gagging to take one. I really yeah, wanted to take one, but this was the planning. Kind of, yeah. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know that anybody actively says, I don't want to take a penalty. I'd be surprised. I, I, you know, especially as ultimately you don't really have a choice. If you're left on the pitch and the game keeps and the kicks keep going, you will take one. Um, but I mean looking at the video of Southgate going around the team and sort of saying who was going to take what he kind of it's almost like he already had it in his mind you know it's, it, it, he, he'd probably base that off how he'd seen them taking penalties in training I think you can definitely still ask the question of do you think a 19 year old whose you know first England appearance came six months ago <laughs> should be given the responsibility of taking that penalty but you know, it, it, at this point, it is what it is. I was just going to ask one other question just about the game. I mean, I saw, I mean, there were quite a few complaints, but the, the Chiellini challenge on Saka and the Jorginho challenge on, was it Grealish? Can't remember if uh, it was Grealish. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it was on Grealish, yeah, and he was down for a long time. That was quite a when, long stoppage. Whether those should have been red cards? Uh, obviously not. They were barely even fells. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, right, neither of them were red cards I don't think but the fact that there was so much discussion on social media I thought now call me crazy I thought that was because we have a a very large number of casual or barely football fans watching and they they see a for example I think the Saka one especially where anyone who does watch a lot of football knows that even though it's the most cynical thing in the world. It's only it's, a booking. Yeah, it's a booking at most all the time. But yeah. if you're my mum or someone, you go, whoa, that's terrible. <laughs> you can't do that. Um, he horse collars them. Or, is that the right phrase? Uh, it might be. I mean, Horse something. Yeah. Um, what do you think? I, I obviously I, think I, that- I didn't think they were red cards at the time. In fact, I thought maybe with the Saka one that, if it had gone to a review, there might. I mean, if it had gone to a review in the Premier League, 
They might even have suggested that Saka had used his arm to keep the ball under control as he was sprinting away from Chiellini. So they might have judged that to happen before the tug back. So yeah. I don't know. I mean... I the, tell you what, the, the Chiellini, Chiellini on Saka one did... It was instructive in that it demonstrated that that wasn't exploited the whole time. Like when Italy's fullbacks especially were bombing forward, you did think... Chiellini is 800 years old and he's looking after, you know, about three acres worth of grass here by himself should someone not just be on his shoulder the entire game and try and peel outside every single time. And then it started happening at the very end and the end he ends up mm. getting, you know, rinsed by Saka and has to take a yellow card. That could have happened a lot earlier. Obviously, all of these things are really easy in retrospect. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Um, and I think that's what I mean by... You know, Southgate will look back on that game and wonder whether he could have made some changes at different times and, and, and you know, push the envelope a little bit. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't to be. It wasn't to be. We've since had, oh, I keep using the word fallout. It feels like a lot of different fallout. You know, you had things that happened during the match and the build-up to the match, after the match, that have all had these kind of semi-toxic or actually probably just toxic-toxic uh effect since then you had ticketless ticketless fans rushing the stadium you know various shades of hooliganism in central london people getting thrown in canals which is you know funny for two seconds and then you're like oh wait that's pretty sickening um social media abuse abuse directed at the players it felt a lot I, i mean i thought this even immediately after the match because anyone who wasn't there in wembley was dual screening and could see all of these things happening in London or at Wembley on social media while watching the game. But especially since then, it does feel like a massive amount of the positive veneer of England's run to the final has been chipped away. Like the the positivity that was in England. And, you know, maybe it wasn't real in the first place, all this kind of unity and togetherness and, you know, fun and joy. Maybe it was there, but actually under the surface, there was, you know, the underbelly. Yeah, I, look, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Because if Rashford and Sancho and Saka score their penalties or just one of them score their penalties and, the, you know, England end up winning that, that shootout, the, the narrative around everything that's happened before, during and after the game relating to fans and supporters and whatnot probably completely changes. But it yeah. doesn't actually mean that there's anything different at all going on i mean absolutely the nasty... it's just a coat of paint right like yeah in the same the na- way that missing penalties doesn't make saka or rashford or sancho bad footballers winning the euros does not make england a less divided country you know it would have been a coat of paint a coat of paint it would have been uh, a story told for about 10 to 15 minutes until everyone a week later realized that things were completely back to the way they were i mean there yeah. is a racist underbelly in our society which rears its head um and gets spoken about in the in the in the nastiest moments but too often gets ignored um you know i it's it's literally no surprise to see one of the england players finally lose it with the government um tyrone mings calling out pretty patel for basically stoking the fires of racism prior to the tournament yeah Uh, what a great tweet by the way just very succinctly worded really nails it yeah i mean it's it's a very interesting power dynamic which is playing out now between some of these young black players who feel far more emboldened i think in part by the success that marcus rashford has had over the course of the last 18 months in persuading the government to you know u-turn um and that that bodes well for the future unfortunately what you also have is you know newspapers like the sun kind of playing it as if they've always been on side with the players when that's literally been anything but true over the course of the last 15 20 (laughs) years and beyond the opposite um the hypocrisy is unbelievable but too many of the readers of those newspapers will quite happily turn a blind eye to that hypocrisy and you know like what they like and dislike what they dislike and continue buying it and putting money into the hands of um, you know, untrustworthy individuals. I, 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 I think there is some heart to be taken from, 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 from the run and from 
the the carnival esque atmosphere that built up over the course of the four weeks. I think people genuinely enjoyed themselves in a way that they haven't really cut loose during COVID. But I also feel like that final just got to a point where the country couldn't control itself. I think, you know, the mere fact that so many people were booking two days off, you know, work Monday and Tuesday because they were basically just going to go for it. I saw um, some of the guys on the Arsenal Vision podcast talking about it's almost like a kind of stag weekendification of, you know, the football experience. You know, it feels like everybody in London wanted to get on it at the weekend and they did or they tried and it nothing was going to stop them and I don't think the authorities were really ready for that I don't think they'd prepared themselves for that I think in many cases they were kind of like well everyone's been through a tough time we should just turn a blind eye and allow them to do that it sounds like the streets around Wembley which now because it's surrounded by loads of you know flats and uh, high-rise shopping opportunities and all the rest of it can't really cope with large crowds massing in the same way that it may have done previously. You've got all these bottlenecks and um, it's become a destination to go even if there's not football, but when there's football, it's a destination just for people, which prior to that, you know, you would never bother turning up to go and just hang around and tailgate around the Wembley area. We were Um, with a friend recently, I was listing the worst parts of London. And I was like, Wembley is by far the worst part of London because it is just, or well, up until relatively recently, it's just a desolate wasteland with a football ground in the middle of it. Um, yeah, and a ra- rather large road kind of splitting it in two. Yeah. yeah. It's a weird, weird place. And But I, I do feel, to, I mean, obviously there should have been a lot of security, there should have been lots of police and stuff. Not that I feel sorry for the police in this instance because I never feel sorry for the police, but... there was a ludicrous amount of people there like there was 67,000 people supposed to be in the ground there was at least that again in the general area which is just an insane amount of people like that's a army presence would be needed to control that or battle against that if you're you've got 60 odd thousand people in the stadium and plus another 60 odd thousand coked up drunk people you know that that was quite actually interesting. That while I mentioned cocaine, it's, this is the first time I've really seen in many media outlets them all mentioning actually that cocaine is a big part of this hooliganism stuff as well as alcohol. I just thought that was an interesting wrinkle. Yeah, I mean, I I think you know football. I mean, football amongst this particular type of football fan has got a drug problem. I don't think there's anything hugely surprising. I mean, our society has quite a a serious kind of social drug problem, a social drug-taking problem, I think. And uh, I mean, I'm not going to lecture people on how they spend their money and what they do with it. But I mean, if you've got 130,000 people on a bender from the moment (laughs) they wake up until a kickoff at 8 p.m., and you're not just mixing, you know, booze, but you're also throwing drugs into the mix because, let's be honest, that's probably what was keeping most of them awake for a full 24 hours or so. Yeah. Um, it's a recipe for disaster. Um, and I, I, I don't think the police... I think the police were caught off guard a little bit because the previous rounds had gone quite well and they'd been a step by step approach to increasing the crowd and bearing in mind this still wasn't a full Wembley right I mean in theory it wasn't the 90,000 that police have so often had to cater for in you know major matches before and um, they should have had it under control but they just didn't really expect the influx of people coming just to socialize in and around the stadium um, and you know those people were the you know, buoyed by the opportunity to potentially buy tickets off touts and stuff. And yeah. ultimately, in the end, emboldened to just charge in because they saw opportunities to get into the stadium without paying at all. I mean, then you had this kind of slightly bizarre situation. Some of the videos showed ticketed fans fighting other fans who were barging their way into the stadium almost because they were, you know, found it an affront to the fact they'd had to pay for tickets, hundreds of pounds in many cases. Um, 
but yeah, very un unseemly scenes. Really quite nasty. The worst of the worst, and naturally now a lot of questions about whether England is a fit host for the 2030 World Cup with Ireland or the rest of it. I mean, you didn't need a bunch of drunken blokes charging into Wembley Stadium on Sunday evening to have that have that discussion. To be honest, yeah, it's uh, I had sort of forgotten about that until I was reading uh, a piece kind of detailing in relatively fine detail the general chaos in the within a mile of Wembley I think it was in the Athletic and they mentioned this probably won't look well now for England and Ireland's joint World Cup bid in 2030 and I was like oh bollocks I forgot about that, that <laughs> I mean I'll be a what, what year is it 2021 that's a long time away but I was thinking I'd quite like to go to see a World Cup match in Dublin someday or I'd quite like Ireland to get automatic qualification for a World Cup because it's probably their best way in. But now these English guys have they've done us. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Did you see that Downing Street sort of quietly today poured water on any potential visit by the team? Boris Johnson said that he wants to focus on his words, leveling up the Freedom Day sort of stuff. Um, I imagine that was more likely a decision made to prevent any sort of PR disaster for the government. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but feel that Tyrone Mings and his comments were probably led by the fact that he knew that they weren't going to be getting an invite. And I don't, I, I, I it would have been an interesting one if they'd invited the players um, to Downing Street. I mean, that's something that definitely would have happened if they'd won. And I'm presuming at some point they would have tried to have held a an open bus kind of trophy parade at some, you know, somewhere around London, which would have been yeah. absolutely mad in this kind of COVID era. Um, yeah, it's definitely an opportunity. It would have been an opportunity for the government to try and pounce on a victory. I think they saw in, in, in the cold light of day that the players probably would have taken the opportunity to reject this. I mean, Trump in America had quite a few high profile sports players reject opportunities to go to the White House, didn't he? And it always made him look like a miserable little shit. So Yeah. Um I think uh at the very least someone would have done that thing where, you know, you go to shake someone's hand and then you just pull it away and go, <laughs> eh Yeah, that, that would not, have been not, sick. Probably probably health and safety protocols dictate that um oh, yeah, it's better no, to do I'm that shaking. anyway. <laughs> Can you do that same thing with an elbow touch maybe? Do people still elbow touch? Was that a thing? I think I think it's we've we've managed to bring it in as an additional awkward thing to do as a greeting. Oh God, who needs more additional awkward things to think about? Um, Copa America that happened. Argentina won Brazil nil. Angel Di Maria with the lob. He won it early for Argentina, who are the England of South America. Do you enjoy a lob, Andrew? Love a lob. They come in many different shapes and sizes. Um, Fav- favorite lob. I'm more of a pitching wedge off the turf, up and under kind of lob. Although you know, like Di Maria's yeah, like a, a proper chip lob. A Di right. Maria's kind of um, bouncing ball volley lob, fine by me. But you know, it wouldn't go to the top of my top of my list. I like. Uh, I, well, actually, these are two bouncing ball half volley ones that I, I mean. There's a couple that I like. There's a Matt Letizia one versus Man United that is your classic kind of up and under one and nanny i remember doing a couple of classic up and unders but two that i liked that were arsenal robert perez versus aston villa and he flicks oh, it yeah. over george Boateng, um and then lobs the keeper who might have been peter, Be- peter michael yeah. yeah it was um and then there's an ian wright one that's like a double flick that's a hybrid i can't remember oh this is against. the this is against everton 1993 against neville southall that sounds about right yeah he does like perez did the one flick over george Boateng, but ian wright does i think it's a double flick over the same guy yeah. who gets turned inside out very good I'm, kind of, I'm just wondering who it was it might have been someone like david unsworth or something um it was uh, one of my favourite goals growing up. I used to watch that on the VHS season review uh, that I had of that particular year. I think it might have been, it might have been the year we were. The, the video was called Cup Kings or something like that. Great name. Um, so I can't remember if it was ninety one, ninety two, or ninety two, ninety three. But either way, um, uh, you know, yeah, fantastic the, goal. The stats department will tell you. Um, yeah, I also yeah. enjoyed Patrick Schick's one in these euros because it won me forty euro in a sweepstake for having the longest goal. Delighted with that. 
Does that is that really a lob? I mean, that seems like I I sort of don't really count that as a lob. Like a lob has to be closer to the goal or the spirit of a lob. I don't know what the technical term for a lob is, but the spirit of the lob has to be, I think, closer to the goal. It has to be sort of directly over the goalkeeper. It can't just be a big hoof yeah. from distance over the keeper. But for the purpose of the conversation, I've thrown it in. I enjoy lobs. Good. I like that they're. You know, football is played left to right and back to front, but not that often is it deliberately played, you know, up and down the vertical axis, the Z axis. I enjoy that. A, a particular slight on the Brazilian game, given their fondness for keeping the ball on the ground then. Uh, yes. In, they're, yeah. they're, I would say Brazil and their history of football is an insult to the spirit of football, actually, because it ignores the Z axis. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're kind of... Is it futsal they play in Brazil, where they keep the ball on the ground with a especially heavy ball? Yeah, um, and it's like I've five never played that. It always looked ball. quite fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, need bigger boots though. Uh, Lionel Messi obviously likes a, a, a lob and was particularly fond of Di Maria's because he's finally won um, an international honour as a as a consequence of this one nil win. Yeah, that's wild. You would have thought that Argentina would have won a Copa America at some point, given that they're. Are they every four years and now they're every two years? The Copper America recently has been all over the place. You know, they've moved it around. They had a centenary one uh, in America, didn't they? I think Chile won a couple in a row, didn't they? And um, Brazil have obviously done quite well with them. But yeah, Chile had a good spell at, at one point when Alexis Sanchez was kind of powering them. Um, yeah, it's been a while though for, for Argentina, who've have always been in and around and done quite well at international tournaments. Obviously they lost to um they lost to Germany, didn't they, in the final of the Brazil World Cup. So that was also at the Maracanã. so they've kind of put that one right. Um, well done to them. Uh, and I saw Angel Di Maria had kind of apparently not been playing particularly well and the Argentinian press was giving him a load of stick and going, Oh no, we need to get rid of him out of the team. But then he goes and scores the goal. Well done to him. Hey. Well, yeah, he's. I mean, he's not had a bad career, has he? I mean, for a bloke who didn't sort of succeed at Manchester United under Louis Van Gaal, he's uh, he's done pretty well, winning Champions Leagues at Real Madrid, and he's obviously having a decent time with things at PSG. But he was at Benfica at one point, wasn't he? I mean, he's a he's a very decent, very decent player. I think I remember him scoring a nice little lob for Manchester United as well back in the day. It seems like the type of thing that he would do. I feel like he might have scored one against Leicester in that game that Leicester won 5-3 and Jamie Vardy kind of announced himself as a sort of Premier League striker. This was the season that they nearly went down uh, the year before they, they then went on their kind of incredible uh, title winning season. But yeah, I, I've got visions of that goal as well. I'll take your word um, for it. I just can't remember that whatsoever. I just remember him scoring some sort of lob at some point, which seems so vague it probably accurate um after the break we'll do not football teenager bakayu saka and it's saved and italy are the european champions Now football starts with Wimbledon. Ashley Barty and Novak Djokovic are Wimbledon champions. I mean, no disrespect to Ashley Barty, who I do like, but it does feel like Novak Djokovic is the big story because he's now equaled um, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal's uh, 20 slam milestone. Will Djokovic ever, Andrew, be actually willingly given his flowers when he surpasses these guys? Or will it just be the most begrudging thing ever? Because I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the guy has the Robert Lewandowski effect where he just feels like a cop. Yeah, he's he's, he's not got the kind of... No magic. He's ro- we've spoken, He's like Robocop. There you go. Yeah. So we're combining analogies there. He's got your cop-like vibe, but he's also machine-like. So he's RoboCop. Yeah. And 
while Robocop obviously was a fun character in the movies, you don't want to watch him play tennis. Do you remember the first Robocop movie where the guy, I can't remember the guy's name, but the police officer who becomes Robocop gets shot up at the start of the film? Yeah. And he gets shot so much. Like, there's never been a more gratuitous scene. He gets shot like eight million times. I, uh, we had a, we had a, we had a science teacher at school who, what was the name of the guy who got shot who then became Robocop? We used to call him the name because his face looked like the face of the guy who'd been shot in Robocop. Anyway, it was all a bit. Wait, after he's been shot? Before, well, he wasn't the best looking lad, but, Jesus, um, that's really cold. I think it was, I think it may have been before, um, I also think he may have had the surname Bait, B-A-T-E. So obviously oh, no. at an old boys' school, when you're called Mr. Bait, you're going to get called Master Bait the whole time. Shit, um, that sucks for him. Yeah, where were we? Novak Djokovic, quite uh, good at tennis. Novak Djokovic, <laughs> um, good at tennis. He's now 120. He's probably going to win 21-22. Like, how far in front do you reckon he has to get for even the people who are massive Nadal or Federer stands to go, oh, do you know what? He actually is the best. Well, look, he's, he's 34 years old now. If he plays for another three or four years, and let's say that there's a dropping off a little bit, even if he, I reckon he's got, as John McEnroe said, he's probably got another five potential Grand Slams in him, including, uh, let's say, the US Open later this year. Uh, so that that will take him into the outright lead, and then after that, everything's a bonus, isn't it? I mean, he can just start doing what Serena does and turning up to the tournaments, you know, when she fancies. Pick and choose. Oh yeah, I'll win this one. You know, save yourself, save your body. Don't go to any of the little tournament, the ATP stuff. Just yeah, I think uh, you know he could easily end up uh, quite a few ahead. I mean, he then well, the other two aren't going to win anymore, right? Or it would be. Remarkable if they did. Maybe I think Fed, maybe Nadal, Nadal might win, win another. French, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I think you've seen with Federer this year, off the back of the surgeries that he's had on his knees and stuff, that his body is now creaking. And at forty, nearly forty years old, I mean, it would be something near miraculous. I think for him to, I mean, unless Djokovic or Nadal had injuries, and he was the last of the kind of the the, the big kings still standing. Um, which seems unlikely. Uh, I can't, like, I don't know if Roger's going to keep going, to be it, honest. It'd be good if there was some, like, just anyone that would come along. Like, maybe it's this Italian geezer that Djokovic beat, but, like, someone that just would come along and be this, like, intense young version of Djokovic so that there was a new a new rivalry. Because the, the Nadal-Federer thing, like, they're, they seem like spent forces. So even talking about them as a sort of, trifecta of competition now feels a bit old it is just Djokovic and a pissing contest yeah it's a bit bit Formula One yeah it's boring it's boring Lewis Hamilton always wins and so does Novak Djokovic I think and tennis is well maybe not but I mean tennis is probably quite aware of the fact that there's a potential two three year spell where Djokovic could just dominate and there won't be any of the usual kind of intrigue uh, because the other big guns have fallen aside um i think djokovic i mean if he really wants to seal his place in history he'll go for the 25 or 26 grand slams which will then put him as an outright grand slam leader ahead of is it margaret court serena williams and steffi graf um who've all done it on the on the women's side of the draw um he's also got the opportunity to become the first man to do a golden slam this year if he can be bothered to turn up in the for the tokyo olympics if he wins that and wins the u.s he'll be the first person to win all five of the big tournaments in a year uh that would be not bad that would not be bad yeah i wonder if that's who he's been after the whole time he's been there's been a target on steffi graf's back (laughs) right i'm gonna get that bitch because she won the golden slam i'm gonna win a golden slam maybe he could Maybe he could kind of up the prestige of his his own Balkan tournament that he might put on next year, and then that becomes you know a slam unto itself. And he's like, "Well, I just won that as well. I'm clearly the greatest player ever." So people still yeah, wouldn't tra- give him his dues. 
I mean, I, I just, I don't know what type of thing. I don't see Djokovic kind of going on to become like a kind of regular in the uh, commentators' box at the Grand Slams in the same way that <laughs> I, I think Federer for sure will. Do you um, reckon he loves it that much? Because you have the, like, the, it's not like Sue Barker or you know, even Lindsay Davenport or whatever would, wins a few slams, makes some money. Like Federer is worth like. A, you know oh, he's 10 worth figures fuck, or whatever fuck ton of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah i tried to think of a large amount of figures his 10 figures has been huge yeah yeah that's like 100 million dollars right yeah i mean the thing is he's got he's hasn't he got twin sons and twin daughters or something crazy that's bad and i mean you wouldn't be surprised if at least one of those goes on to become a a, a tennis star i mean you'd be very disappointed if the two boys don't play doubles together the two girls play doubles together and then they switch and play mixed doubles together as well and just basically take over all tennis this kind of federer factory of players that's very um, cute yeah we should make this happen <laughs> well i don't know what we said we, we send, send them a nice tweet say we've got this suggestion yeah how old are these kids like 10 or something uh let's so you keep talking let me have a how old are how old google's good at this how old are Roger Federer's kids. I'm just thinking, like, is there already evidence to suggest that, look, they could end up good at tennis? Have they already been signed up by some prestigious club? Yeah, uh, some American university. He's got the so two are so the two. I think his two daughters are ten, and I think the sons are slightly younger. So look, they could be they could easily be playing quite soon. Give it ten years, and they'll be winning a Wimbledon doubles championship each yeah i mean this is quite wishful thinking what we need is a rival for Djokovic, and i don't think it's going to be one of roger federer's kids for some reason i'm I'm just massively indulging in an article about roger federer's kids right now so sorry i completely missed what you said there that was very unprofessional you don't worry about it i'm just talking <laughs> shit uh let's change sports to something much more violent the ultimate fighting championship which should just be called the ultimate fighting championship i don't know why they abbreviate it Ultimate Fighting Championship is a badass name for a thing. Conor McGregor snapped his leg at UFC 264. Conor McGregor is a bad person. I don't like him. Should I feel guilty for... Not that I would actively wish a broken leg on anyone, but I don't mind seeing this as much as when, you know, someone nice gets injured. Does that make me a bad person, Andrew? I think you're... You're already battling with whether or not you're a good or a bad person off the back of wishing young Bukayo Saka harm via a penalty shootout. <laughs> Don't make me um, feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> so much Catholic guilt bestowed upon yourself this weekend. Yeah, um, God, it's killing like, me. Conor McGregor's a prick. He deserves it. I don't care if his fucking tibia snaps in eight places, let alone one. Yeah, um, very nasty it, stuff. Very nasty leg break, but very nasty human being. He's he's not a nice fellow, is he? And I heard that, you know, even while he was being treated on the floor with his leg in, in, in bits, that he was screaming death threats at his opponent, apparently. Is this right? He I was I was clipping some audio for the end of the show today and I found this McGregor interview in the octagon and I was like, No, interview? That can't be right. I just thought that he was shouting at him because I had heard that he shouted at the that Dustin Poirier. But no, Joe Rogan gets in the ring and sits down next to Conor McGregor, who's just had his leg put in one of those like moon boots or whatever, um, and is like interviewing him. It's like he's just snapped his fucking leg. Like I don't even like him, but I think that he should probably go to the hospital or something. And uh, he just, I can't remember if he grabs the microphone, but he definitely like draws the microphone over him to himself and just starts going... Ah, your wife slid into me DMs. Uh, tell her to come back to the after party at, you know, such and such a fucking nightclub or whatever. And you're just going, when I'm out of a, surgery. Yeah, give yeah. it a break, mate. Like, Jesus Christ. I mean, I know he got a break, but just give it one. Absolutely torrid stuff. Is uh, In some ways, I, no, I don't admire it, but I definitely appreciate the the mentality that he's so committed to being just a god awful person that he's just had his leg broken and 30 seconds later he's already talking shit to the guy who broke his leg i mean how how long can he go on i mean he's he used to have an air of invincibility about him and nowadays he loses quite a lot i mean when you've just snapped your leg and you're in your what mid 30s yeah he surely can't keep doing this and 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 you know 
expect to live a long and prosperous life i mean he's got a lot of money already why doesn't he just give it up and go and spend that money and you know i don't know cuss people on twitter instead of in person after yeah losing especially in a sport like that like you have to really want to go in and kill or be killed like there's no you can't just be a bit like oh not sure if i'm in the mood today to go in and try and kill another man um i don't quite understand how he musters the will to do it it must be a money thing or some kind of just innate psychological desire to fight but also yeah the wear and tear like you you get knocked out easier you get slower you get hurt why would you want to be doing it i don't i truly do not understand and also when you do have that air of invincibility this happens with a lot of fighters on their way up people haven't figured out how to beat you yet you're not like once they do figure it out or once there's lots of tape on you it's easier for them to beat you unless you were to absolutely completely radically change your fighting style but you can't do that it's not like you know playing three four three instead of a four five one or something it's it's a lot different to that and um, so i don't know i don't know why he's still doing it i presume for money he's still he's obviously not at the top of the world anymore he just needs to go away Maybe he's trying to make a lot more money. Maybe he's worried about, you know, some kind of conviction current down the road. I don't know, Andrew. I don't know. I imagine he'll end up in politics off the back of that wonderful manifesto he kind of outlined a few years ago. Oh, God. Maybe it have been last year, actually. And you know what? There's still some people in Ireland that would vote for him, even though I think the majority of people are well and truly off the bandwagon. But someone would vote for him. Someone would vote for him. Here, do you like baseball? Yeah, not really. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it's not that I don't like it. I just don't, I still don't really understand it. I mean, we talk about it periodically, but I did think that this geezer, Shohei Otani, might tickle your fancy. Uh, he is oh, a okay. a two-way player, pitching and hitting. Nobody does this, Andrew. And uh, this season, he's just sort of having this. I think it, he's going to end up being the most valuable player in the Major League Baseball this year, just because he's pretty much one of the top hitters and pretty much one of the top pitchers that's pretty insane that you could just be the best at the two completely distinct things in a sport is it well if you take i mean like i just think of cricket and yeah they've obviously got good rounders good all-rounders are unusual but not completely uncommon but this is insanely uncommon like there's no great two-way players in baseball and i don't need are there Someone, I know someone is going to send me a list of fucking the top 20 all-rounders in cricket now, but <laughs> who are the great all-rounders in cricket at the moment? Like, who are truly some of the best bowlers and some of the best batsmen? Like, the one I, I always used to remember back in the day was Jack Callis. And I was like, he's electric. He's truly one of the best batsmen. And he's a very good bowler. But he wasn't, like, the best bowler. Yuvraj Singh, maybe, who played for India. Maybe more in T20, but he could like slog and he could bowl. There's other ones I'm forgetting, but I don't yeah, think it's Botham super. Was your, Ian, Ian Botham was your classic example in the 70s and 80s, obviously. So it's relatively um, unusual. All right, fine. I take it on board. Whereas this but, this, so, this guy they're going like, Shohei Otani is Babe Ruth. like, And he's the last truly great hitter and pitcher. I mean, he's a, I'm just looking, looking at the pictures. He's a big bloke, isn't he? He's a real broad-shouldered, kind of muscly fellow, but at the same time, very friendly face. A very trustworthy, trust trustworthy face, I'd say. Yeah. Um, uh, Does he make you want to watch baseball? Admittedly, he can only he can't pitch all the time, and he can't hit every every at bat. So <laughs> there's a lot of dead time if you're waiting for Shohei Tani to come on. I mean, I've just looked up his nickname. Obviously, it's Showtime. Yeah, I mean, it feels natural. That's right? incredible. Um, it feels ironic so he, that anyone in baseball is called Showtime, but, you know, well, no shots yeah, fired. Yeah. So so how long has he been in the MLB? When did he make his move over from Japan? I think he moved in 2018 and then had a reasonably handy year and then got injured. And now it's this year that he's like properly stealing the show. And everyone's like, whoa, this geezer's box office. Like, I think he's going to be, he'll be playing in the All-Star game this weekend, I think. Is this weekend? It's sometime soon. Um, 
so this sort of seems like an ample opportune time to 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 see if Shohei would get you into baseball, Andrew. You seem to have indicated that that won't be the case. Is there anything that would well, make you watch baseball? I know that I'm, it's I'm, a million hours long per game, which is a bit of a put off. You know me. I mean, I'm I'm always big on a, a a franchise's logo. I quite like the Los Angeles Angels logo, but I do think that calling yourself basically the Angels Angels seems a bit weird. Yeah. Wait, wait um, are they the? Are they not the Anaheim Angels? It says they're called the Los Angeles Angels on Wikipedia. Where have I just made up the Anaheim Angels from? Where are they? Uh, oh, they did play there until 2015. Oh, there you go. It's like, well, they uh, were called the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, having previously been the Anaheim Angels until 2004. Um, great um, baseball history for you here today on left field. Yeah, well, actually, the current name harks back to their first name, which they held between 61 and 65. That, so they've gone back to their roots. That very specific four years of glory. Good for them. Um uh have you ever owned a baseball top should i buy one if so who's got the best i i owned a dudley boys wwe like they had a baseball top um and it it sounds horrific dudleyville on the front and 3d on the back because that was their big move so that's the only baseball top i've ever owned i've owned lots of baseball hats um i think i have a oh i had got a lovely um san francisco giants one back in the day when i was really into Barry Bonds before I found out that he was juiced out of his mind. Well, I guess everyone was juiced out of their mind back then, so it was a level playing field. Yeah, and so was everyone at Wembley. I mean, you just can't get away from people being juiced up these days. <laughs> what baseball top should you buy? Uh, I mean, uh, there's still a few problematic team names, right? You can't be, you can't be a Cleveland Indian. I don't think. I think that's problematic. Um, okay. Maybe this is something we can look ahead to. I mean, we're 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 the new baseball season just starting, is it, or is it just finishing? Uh, I think we're about halfway in. Okay, so it could start to get interesting then. I mean, it could, yeah. It, theoretically, not it for could. a while. Um, not till the playoffs. And finally, Richard Branson went to space this week. Would you like to go to space? Yes. Really, but not with. But not with Richard Branson. No, he's a very bad man. Who's your least favourite billionaire? That was my other one. Stan Kroenke. (laughs) (laughs) Give us your thoughts on how it was going. I was boxing the bleeding head off him, kicking the bleeding leg off him. Usual shit doing to close the distance. This is not over. If we had to take this outside with him, it's all outside. We don't give a